0: Reach out to me at Stephanie at to see how your business can benefit from partnering with our team at Upnext in Commerce.
1: What I see is commerce digital disruption coming is that the groups and countries or cultures that have more comfort with change or risk are going to be more successful at transitioning to a lot of these ways of working and buying.
2: For more than 15 years, Dylan Vallade was working at his own company, working on some of the coolest e-commerce and technology projects in the world, and one of his clients was Puma. When Puma approached Dylan to come onto the team full-time and move to Germany to run global e-commerce, it was a tough decision. But ultimately, Dylan was excited about the opportunity to completely revamp the e-commerce platform at Puma and help it become a leader in this industry. Today, Dylan is the head of global e-commerce technology at Puma, and on this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Dylan explains what he was focused on during the initial steps of the transformation process and how being a change manager is kind of like being a time traveler. Plus, he discusses how the current state of e-commerce is changing and what he thinks is up next in the industry, which he believes will have a lot to do with automation and advanced technologies. Enjoy this conversation.
0: Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Dylan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So we were just saying you're in Germany right now. How long have you been there and what brought you out there?
1: Uh, moved to Germany a little over three years ago and Puma brought me out here. So um, Puma had been a client of my digital company in the U.S. and asked if I would kind of switch teams and go internal. So that's what I did.
0: Very cool. So was it your own company that you were running in the yes. U.S.? Yeah. Right, tell us a little bit about that and how you started that.
1: That started out of just an interest in, in computers and the web. And um, I began picking up clients in Colorado when I was there for mostly for skiing, <laughs> skiing and snowboarding, but I did nice. computing on the side and mm-hmm. um, just started picking up clients in business. Got it. And ended up doing that for 15 years. So it's a long period of my life and was a really good opportunity because I got to work on all the most interesting projects that, you know, we could come up with. And Puma came along in, in that time and we ended up doing some work for them for their global e-commerce team, which was based in Boston at the time. And then they did a reorg and shuffled the group back to Europe where corporate headquarters are. And in that time, I moved to help kind of re-architect the way we do the technology.
0: Very cool. And have you been there for a couple of years or how long has it been now?
1: Yeah, since 2016.
0: Okay. And what's that change been like moving to Europe from, you said Michigan, right?
1: From Michigan. uh, It's drastic.
0: (laughs) Yeah. What's the biggest change?
1: There are many, uh, but (laughs) when you, first you make the decision to move, it's a big choice. And so I actually had kind of dismissed the opportunity, but it was my wife who said, well, if I woke up 20 years from now and we didn't do anything differently, I would regret it. So let's try it.
0: That's great. <laughs> and did you have kids at the time?
1: We had two kids and then we've had a third since we got here.
0: Oh, great. Congrats.
1: Yeah. The, the change is pretty consistent. As you talked a lot of other expats, that the first six months are awful. <laughs> more or <Yeah>. or less.
0: <laughs> You're like, I want to go home.
1: <laughs> it's just, yeah, you've upended your whole life. And then you've got all the, you know, different government documents that need to be signed and, notarized and you've got all these different appointments and you don't know how to get your haircut. You don't know where to go grocery shopping. (laughs) You don't know how to pay your taxes, like just all of the little things that you just know don't work anymore. And then you also don't have family and friends to talk to in your time zone, which is tough.
0: Yeah, that's hard. So you went out there for Puma. What does your role look like now? Has it changed since you've gotten out there?
1: It has. So I arrived as a one person team Focus specifically on the e-commerce technology and the, as a specialist for that. And the role was basically come in, figure out what we can improve, and then begin the change, Start start improving what you can. And in that time, a lot of the changes have been pretty successful. And so now we are at a point that we just keep expanding the scope and just adding more and more tools to what we do and more people to the process. So it's just... Grown in scale.
0: Dylan, what's your philosophy or idea around change management?
1: So, my philosophy with change management is that you're really focused on mentality and time. So, the mindset that the person who's bringing the change has is a completely different point in time than the person who needs to adopt the change. And so, um, I got this input from from Puma's change management program where we we were taught that if you're the change agent, you're traveling from the future and you need to come back in time and help everyone else realize that something important is happening. And then based on that, you've got to be persuasive enough to say, within the time frame, you've got to make a change or else. And then that's where you get into how much time. And so if you look at what's happening in the public right now, we have the current crisis, which is months, weeks, and days. The previous big effort is, is climate crisis, which doesn't have people perishing every day. So it's, it takes a lot of effort to keep the focus on it. And pollution is part of that, but that's not something that's sensational. So you have to be able to show visually that there's progress and what the steps are. So I like to give people the first step and then show that progress over time make it very visual and then that's how we report whether it's working or not time is really important and another good advice that i got from a business consultant about 10 years ago was that about 50% of small businesses fail before they get to the 5 or 10 years yeah. and in that time you only have 260 weeks to make whatever you are going to make happen and be successful so you can't just say, I'm going to start this new initiative or start this business and it's going to be successful. You have a bunch of changes in between. And then he's, when he started breaking that down, then you're in weeks. And if you're already 18 months in, you've only got 185 weeks left. Whoa, okay. Yep. <laughs> now it's really, this is coming fast. But starting to think like that makes it always urgent, which is kind of important mm-hmm. if you really want to change anything. So getting that mindset, that mentality, of time in sync with the two parties is important.
0: Yeah. I like the idea of having it visual as well. I think I saw this, uh, I don't know where it was trending, maybe probably on Instagram or something where it showed how many um, days left you have with your parents or like with your kids or something up until they're 18. And it put it in maybe like, I don't know, hamburger emojis or something like that. And then here's how many days you have left until they go to high school or something. I mean, it was this whole thing. And when it put it visually, it's like, Oh man, I don't have that much time. I better hurry. So yeah, I like that idea a lot.
1: And the, the visual part is why the Kanban approach has been so popular. And that when you have a Kanban board, you actually see the work, whether it's post-its or it's digital, to be able to really see it, you can focus on it and you can focus on it over time. Because that's the hard part yep. is how do you keep focus for enough time to make the change happen? And the other thing that you would need is a coalition of the willing. You've got to have a partner in crime. You can't do it alone. And so, Mm -hmm. that change has to be something that gives you joy personally, even if it's some sort of sick joy that you actually like web servers and making them faster and (laughs) that, that type of stuff. But you have to care about it enough that every day you're willing to get up and do it and you don't need to be talked into doing it. And that when you come into contact with anyone who might be able to help you, you can quickly explain it in terms they understand so they can get behind you. And that's a big part of what's required in what I do.
0: Got it. And what are some of the biggest changes that you made while you're in your role right now?
1: The biggest focus for me was getting to a modern software development approach. The way most, most companies in general, but e-commerce and retailers seem to emerge is that there will be someone who has an interest in technology and they get control of the website yep. and then control of the sales online. And then that either lives in kind of a marketing team, or IT, or some sort of external party completely, some vendor. Mm -hmm. And what Puma had done was basically built up a whole bunch of those all around the world. And even if you have a common starting technology stack, you end up changing that pretty drastically over the years as you move from country to country. Mm -hmm. So that was where we began with Commerce Cloud being the first Major item. And so, focused on how to make Commerce Cloud fast, how to get the people working around it working together, especially across the, the national borders. And then you have the one piece, which is just the actual technology, like make Commerce Cloud fast. Mm-hmm. And then there's how do you bring all of the people involved together who are external and internal so they're working on the same projects and that they have the same understanding, it's clarity around what's being built the timing's understood, and that the budget is properly tracked. And when you see something's not working, stop doing it instead of just continuing on.
0: Got it. That sounds yeah like a huge challenge, especially if you're doing things globally. What kind of problems did you encounter when you were trying to bring all those teams together and people together, especially if you're trying to align marketing and sales and IT to all come together and work on the same project together? How did you decide what systems and tools to implement? And how did you decide what was a priority?
1: The focus was you know where's the money and the money's coming from or the future money is coming from digital and so what's going to be needed in the future isn't what we need for right now and so the approach that i took was okay what's working right now i, I don't want to break but the things that i know have symptoms of bigger process problems would be the ones that i'd want to focus on first mm-hmm. and the time it was taking to get a new enhancement or a bug fix or something live on puma.com was longer than I thought was possible. So, okay, this is where we should start. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, what would make sense is also bringing the websites to a, a more modern technology set of technologies. And at the time, Salesforce was working on this new architecture for their commerce system. So we offered to take the beta pilot route with them and build it together And that basically extended what we were doing to a much wider scope than I had originally anticipated. So we basically rebuilt Puma.com using Commerce Cloud, their new reference architecture. And that meant a full redesign of the site and new integrations with the tools, analytics, and everything. It was it was a lot in hindsight. Yeah, so in Uh, hindsight. Uh, the the analytics piece was the one that I underestimated. People are very reliant on the data and the reports that they have. And when you start mm-hmm. screwing around with the tools that they're using and the interfaces that they're using to collect that information, their reports will change. And even if the reports were wrong before, they trusted them. And so when, when we made these changes, everybody's reports no longer were accurate. And um, what we learned again later was that the reports weren't right the first time. So there was a whole lot of, uh, of discussion around who's got the true source of data, who's responsible for maintaining that. So then now as a new feature is introduced in one country and it might impact another, whose job is it to make everyone else aware? So a lot of the questions became focused around the communication when you start to really centralize services. And that was a big step for us.
0: Yeah, no, that hits home for me. I uh, Back in the day, I worked at Google and there was a lot of issues around data and a BI team would come in and give people all these fancy dashboards and things like that. And people would be quoting numbers to find out that maybe those numbers weren't right and people had weird filters on or the source data wasn't even correct and turned into a whole thing where every time a new analytics project was being launched, they started figuring out how many people they need to staff to even keep that running and if it was worth it. And yeah, that's a challenge.
1: I wish that you would have been there then on day one to help me know that that was coming.
0: Oh, I don't know if I'd sign myself up for that project. I saw too many engineers struggling and too many marketing people upset. So it wasn't the happiest environment. No. I mean, using metrics and data is a tricky thing. One thing I can think of is like when people would go off of impressions and everyone starts, you know, quoting impressions as being the best thing to find out maybe you actually don't want to use that number. Or another funny thing I heard was I think there's this one company that goes around and they are saying that they have, they serve a, like a million custom landing pages every single day. So they're like the best company when it comes to personalization to find out that really they're just changing the name on the landing page and they're calling that personalization. Is there any metrics that you've seen, maybe not Puma, but previous companies use or other uh, competitor companies using where you think those metrics might be leading them down the wrong path or? They're quoting it in reports and they're using it as their their North Star and they shouldn't be.
1: Impressions is a perfect one. Anything that is, I guess what I would put in the vanity metric category, all the metrics that we focused on in the 90s and early 2000s, because that's just what was available, since it was just a step up from server logs. And mm-hmm. you ended up with just raw counts of things that have almost no value and that you didn't validate that it's real traffic at all. One of the biggest changes we made that I saw being really helpful was basically identifying that in your report at a country level, if you're unable to deliver product outside of that country or that economic region, don't really consider that traffic in your actual conversion reporting because it's impossible for the person to convert if you don't even ship to where they live. So when you start looking at it in a more um, like what's possible, like where reality comes into this, I find that you get something you can make use out of. So now if we have decisions being made about the success of a campaign, but 20% of the traffic was you know, people just coming in from other countries, that isn't realistic to say that this campaign was a failure or a success.
0: Got it. Yeah, that's, that's a really key thing to know is what's going to be in the denominator of that equation. Yeah. So we talked about a metric maybe that you shouldn't use What is your definition of success for e-commerce? Is it conversion or speed or design, scalability? And you can't say everything. You have to pick one or two if possible.
1: It's not everything. No, for me, it's very simple. It's um, (laughs) growth and net sales year to year and doing that without sacrificing profitability. You have to maintain your margin over time. You can't just continue to discount and run promotions. And if you're not growing, you're dying. So that's it. And then you use all of those other levers to control those two numbers.
0: Got it. So if you dive into the profitability piece or the growing piece, what kind of initiatives are you working on right now when it comes to growing over the next couple of years or even decades to focus on them?
1: Good question. The advantage of, of the current pandemic is that we're hyper-focused on just those topics. The way we've done it is broken up our our teams into temporary program teams. One focused on performance marketing, another focused on data quality and product data availability, and then the third focused on core technology projects. So those 3 pillars make up all of the work that our department is focused on delivering for headquarters and for all the regions. And so within that, we're really trying to make the absolute most out of every performance marketing dollar euro spent. And in that, a lot of it is education for people who have been doing traditional brand marketing that's just getting Puma out in front of the whole world to what can we do to support Puma's direct-to-consumer path You know, right now, especially if the retailers aren't open in all markets. So there's a lot of learning that's just new for the organization, which is a 70-year-old wholesale distributor model, product design and distribution, not direct-to-consumer. So it's, it's a lot of lot education.
0: I was just browsing through Puma's website. Would part of those campaigns be the live workouts that Puma's doing and like the engagement you guys are starting to do with consumers more real time? And did that just come up due to the COVID-19 and the environment that we're in right now? Or have you all been doing that for a while?
1: That's a perfect example. And I'm glad you asked about okay. that one. <laughs> so the, <laughs> the working out at home is certainly a focus right now that, that we had built this awesome... App called Puma Track that was incubated in the EMEA market in, in Europe and has 100 plus video workouts in it from our celebrity athletes and tracks your runs. This has just been available for free for years from Puma. And with all of a sudden, we have all these people working out at home and we see traffic going through the roof on this app, we immediately pivoted and turned out a a web-based version so people could use it on their computer and not need an app to download. And then they'd be able to do it from anywhere and put it on any device. So that was a quick pivot to get brand marketing, local performance marketing, and the technology teams all working together.
0: Yeah, that's great. I need to hop on some of those workouts. It always seems like people in EMEA are the ones that spearhead the best workouts and they always have the best looking clothes. That's who I follow on Instagram. Everyone who's in Europe. (laughs) (laughs) So how did you get that app and the webpage? Was it just organic? People just started coming to it? Or how did you get it found? Because you can make great things. And then if no one finds it, or no one knows it's there.
1: <laughs> That's the trick. And so the EMEA market and their regional marketing effort kept investing in, in campaigns to promote the app. And they would do it in a, at a country level. So roll it out in India get a lot of excitement in, in a country and kind of do it that way. So you'd find a local celebrity athlete, ambassador who would want to make videos and do workouts and has a following and work with each one. And then kind of grew organically that way. And was also given a big push from our innovations team at headquarters. And then the next place it went was, was to global e-commerce and turned it into, this is something that's working and great. So now let's improve the technology behind it and the process for maintaining it. So now we've got it in the next evolution of all of these tools at, at a company. is like Once they've been successful, now you have to take care of it. And that seems to be the, yeah. the big difference between uh, where there's a handover from kind of like a marketing or agency startup concept to know who's going to foster this and support it. And so that's our team.
0: Got it. And with people coming from all over, did you start testing things, doing A-B tests, serving them uh, and directing different offers to different types of people? Based on this new traffic in the app, did you change anything, or just kind of keep it how it was and just keep adding more content?
1: Uh, the app we've been, you know, just improving. The, most of the traffic is is coming directly to the e-commerce sites in each country, and so the the big pivots there are making landing pages and categories that speak to being at home and spending a whole day in your pajamas <laughs> or leisure wear while you're on your Zoom calls. That's me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So that that was really where the the change happened it was reorganize the entire merchandising calendar to get the products people need right now in front of them.
0: And how quickly can you make those changes? Because one thing I can kind of see coming out of this environment we're in right now is that a lot of things have been sped up. Whether it's you know you see things with the the government agencies being sped up, or I'm wondering about internal processes. I can just think about like you mentioned before, Google bug fixes and website changes sometimes could take like quarters. I mean, everyone had to debate it. It had to go through so many different levels. Do you think you guys are seeing different internal practices, practices changing now with the current environment we're in?
1: Absolutely. That's one of the most exciting things for me about this whole quarter is that all of these traditional walls and barriers that have been up are completely busted through. Everything is... Everyone's just able to talk openly and honestly about where things are, what's worth doing right now, what was a good idea six months ago, but isn't a good idea anymore. It's just not appropriate anymore. Mm -hmm. And let's just stop doing those. And let's put the focus on the ones that either weren't even on the list yet, or were on the list, but we just haven't had time to finish them or focus. And that's where the conversation has moved to. And then a lot of the hurt feelings or, you know, stepping on toes type conversations have gone away. There's just get it done and get it done as fast as we can. It's great.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. It definitely feels like a time where you can kind of start from scratch and just say, hey, what are your priorities right now? And everything else just can go to the second half of the year. And it could be a great thing for a lot of companies.
1: So something that had changed in the last couple of years was that we centralized the communication and made the work in progress visual. That was really... Two of our primary focus areas. And by doing that, we had already built up all of the places where we needed people to collaborate. And we already had it, internal and external. So we already had lists of the ideas, all the roadmaps from every country, all their top priorities. And then when this all happened in the last two months, we just said, OK, let's take the priorities that you've already documented and let's put a number to each one. Let's figure out how much we'd make on this, how much would it cost, how much time and just reshuffle the priorities and then do a quick overlap of who's doing what so we don't duplicate effort. And these were things we just couldn't do a few years ago because there was no place to have the conversation.
0: Yep. No urgency.
1: There was no urgency and there was nobody even knew each other's names.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And what, if you were thinking about everyone coming together, did you deprioritize a lot of similar things? And what, so what things did you prioritize going forward and what things did you kind of, you know, shelf right now?
1: So just from our own list we went from about a little over a 100 parallel projects to 40 and so in that I'd you know, say 60 70% we just stopped even looking at and then the focus became what is going to drive business in the next 4 to 8 weeks mm-hmm. and so that that's where it, in times of change it's about mindset and time frame and so when the When you're on a global team, you're usually expected to look out quarters in advance, years in advance. While the market teams are trying to move product that's in a warehouse today out of that warehouse as fast as possible and do it in a way that's still exciting and valuable to the consumers. So that when you start moving all the the global people towards that daily mindset, you get a whole lot of new ideas and different perspectives on what the other people have been looking at all the time. And then you also start to say, geez, the ideas I had were flawed because this is how they actually work. And so we've also learned where we've made mistakes or we're planning to make mistakes. So that's been kind of a nice benefit on the side of all this.
0: Yeah. And are you using data to kind of make those decisions for you of, you know, when you're coming up with how to actually meet people where they are right now over the next four to eight weeks? How are you even coming up with, you know, what that shopping behavior looks like? What are you looking at to determine that? Or is it a gut feeling where you're like, I think people are probably going to do this. So let's try that.
1: There's a, yeah, a bit of a of gut feeling, which is people are at home. They probably need things that they would want to wear at home. And that's been correct. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. the, the other ones that are maybe more subtle would be things like realizing that, a bunch of products that we thought were available online because there's thousands and thousands of different sizes and articles online weren't. And it's taking the time to figure out what system along the chain did they get stuck at Mm -hmm. and then going back and figuring out, well, why were they stuck? And so this would be then getting them into different marketplaces, not just under puma.com and the people are there. We know they're there. We just didn't know that they couldn't get all of our product. So there's a bunch of work like that that's really low level and a highly detailed. And we finally are, by freeing up those other 70 projects that needed daily status reports or constant updates or whatever, that people are freed to look at the things they are looking at in a lot more depth. And so we're just getting more quality out of the things we're doing.
0: Got it. Yeah, that's great. When it comes to um, yeah determining those projects globally... Is everyone kind of working on the same thing right now? Or does, you know, is it region specific? Because I could see some, you know, some areas experiencing different issues than, you know, maybe the US is experiencing one thing where Asia is experiencing a whole different buying behavior. How do you address those different markets, especially when something has to move so quickly like the environment we're in right now?
1: So this is where the communication, centralized communication is so important that we didn't have before. Each of the regions are they're separate subsidiaries for Puma are different trading companies. And they have their own, their own inventories, their own stores. So mm-hmm. they have very different problems right now. I mean, they're also focused on different things. So these are the topics that they would focus on locally. And then we would say, okay, what is it that's on your top list? And my team actually flew into Boston to meet with our team there at our Westford office in Massachusetts. And we did a couple day workshop just to go through this process. Like how will we figure out what we're going to work on and let's do it together. Fortunately, we did that right before COVID so we could still fly.
0: Yeah, that's good.
1: That's how we do it. So we do actually in-person visits into the markets, and then that keeps a relationship kind of going and, and you get things face to face. You don't get over, over the phone. And then coming back to headquarters, we've got our roadmap that we share with everyone. Everything's wide open. Kind of operate as an open source software development community inside the company and with our vendors. So outside of financial information, everybody can see everything. And that makes it really easy to see what each other is doing and avoid that duplication of effort.
0: Yep. All right. To move on to a little bit higher level uh, questions, what disruption do you see coming to commerce over the next couple of years? And I can even talk about maybe if consumer shopping behavior might continue how it is now, if that's going to disrupt the future or anything else you see coming down the road. You just need to take out your crystal ball. That's all.
1: (laughs) I'm thinking about my crystal ball. There is a big gap in what is considered foundational education for the type of work that we're doing today and the type of work that was needed when the current education systems were designed.
0: Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a bit more?
1: Yeah, I say. So in Germany, for example... There is a large shortage of people that have IT knowledge and and experience. So they are more willing to accept people like me in as residents because they want people with these skills in their workforce. And what I see is like a digital disruption or e-commerce digital disruption coming is that the groups and countries or cultures that have more comfort with change or risk are going to be more successful at transitioning to a lot of these ways of working and buying. In Asia, the mobile device is everything. And so you, everywhere you walk, there's people are on their phone consuming everything and you see two or three phones out in someone's lap and they're, it's just amazing how connected they are. And then I'll go into... To somewhere in the U.S. and everyone's really comfortable with computers, and they're also pretty comfortable with with changing to using the devices. Their privacy is uh, in between, and then we come to Germany, and people like to pay by invoice. Mm-hmm. So you're buying a pair of shoes for fifty or hundred euro, and you're not going to pay for thirty days. It's not like they swipe your credit card. They're really going to check your credit history and send you a bill in the mail, and you're going to transfer money later to them, hopefully, or send the shoes back. So it's just a totally different way of working. People who want to work with paper and pencil, trying to build e-commerce and digital into their manufacturing, their supply chain, and their sales process, like they just are going to struggle and continue to struggle to make that adoption. Mm-hmm. And so what I see being the big disruption are the, the communities that train their younger people to use the technology for good and for commerce and for manufacturing and logistics versus those who are just gaming with it or are just going to ignore it because they don't like it or understand it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's more we'll see. And then then either way, the artificial intelligence and those things are coming. So if education starts to be built around that, whether it's primary or secondary, I think that's where you're going to see the most disruption. And all of a sudden you're going to see just different ways of working people eliminating plastics or whatever it would be, problems from their supply chain because it's not necessary anymore and that they'll find solutions. And then it's going to be what companies operate like Google, where it's a software company, Microsoft. These companies are led by software developers, founded by software developers. They completely embrace that way of working and, and living and seeing things. And that seems to be the biggest difference for me. So then the brands that have people in charge of their digital experience who also really have a strong foundation in databases, networking, systems thinking, they're going to be the ones that just outperform. So then regardless of what the disruption is, they'll be able to adopt it or assess that it's valuable or not. And that's a big part of what I'm asked to do. A Puma is just, is this a good idea?
0: Yeah, that's great. Education is definitely key. I kind of am wondering if it's, I don't know if it's the right term it's the leapfrog effect where the certain regions or countries or industries that never had access to something, they kind of just skip over it. So I think Asia and maybe even India might be a good model of this where I think they never really had point of sale systems. And so they just skipped over that completely because they never had access to it and they just went right to mobile. And that was something when we were at Google, we always watched is that a lot of them, you know, we were still focused on desktop and mobile for the Americas, but when, when looking at India with the next billion users and, you know, China, it's like, well, they don't really care about that. They really all just went right to mobile and we need to focus just on that. Do you think that's like something to consider as well when looking at different markets and education and all that is that there might just be a big portion that people just skip right over? They're like, ah, oh, we don't need that. We already saw that it's happening in other countries and we never had access to that. So we'll just go on to the next thing. That might be how they actually get ahead.
1: That's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect explanation of how things are working.
0: Are there certain markets that you look to kind of learn from? And then do you try and push that behavior on, you know, maybe the Germany's of the world, which because my family's from Germany, I'm allowed to say they're behind. (laughs) But are you (laughs) are you trying to push that on that consumer buying behavior to be like, hey, this is what's good for you. (laughs) This is what's easier. Come on.
1: Um, I guess not not so much uh, push it on to the other markets, but it's to identify what worked somewhere where you would see the trend going that direction culturally for the other groups. And so then what's popular with with the Chinese market or in Japan and how they might be purchasing... Like One example would be the P.O. box equivalent in Japan would be that the people would want to have their product delivered to the train station that they're going to be at at 7.30 in the morning instead of to their apartment, which they're almost never at. So then you need this whole logistics system for figuring out where people are going to want to be and make sure you deliver it at that time, instead of saying, what's a five day window to have it at your doorstep, they'd rather see it like, I want it tomorrow and I can be here tomorrow. Can you get it to me? And then now you move to the US years later and you have these courier lockers that are being set up in different places where they're kind of doing the same thing, but you still have the PO box, but you have this reluctance of different carriers to deliver to a PO box. And even some brands won't do it. And so it's just, those are the things I'm looking at. Like, okay, if you skip this whole idea that you have to deliver to someone's home and do it while they're there, mm-hmm. what have you just unlocked? And that's the opportunity that I look for. Like We're not going to push it on you, but this is what's possible. And you have the alternate payment methods as well, like um, Klarna and Afterpay. Like, these are things that don't come out of the US, but the US market's adopting. Mm-hmm. And then what we're expected to do is make a flexible templated technology stack where you can substitute those different third parties and vendors and solutions in without compromising the whole of Puma's security and, and technology approach, hmm. the enterprise architecture.
0: Got it. That makes sense. Are there certain companies that you look towards to, you know, who are either leading the change or you kind of keep close tabs on because you know, they're always ahead Just like as in looking at the different markets and stuff to see what they're doing. Are there people you pay attention to in the industry or companies?
1: One company that really impressed me was Vail Resorts. They managed to take the idea of just moving someone from the bottom of a hill to the top of a hill with sticks on their feet (laughs) to using the ticket that was formerly was hanging off their jacket to turn it into RFID card Mm -hmm. that allowed you access to such a national park forest land and to buy food and to get lodging deals and to do these transactions internationally all from like a, just a pay to play loyalty card. And that idea of just hyper consumer value and allowing the person to self service to me is exactly where we'd want to be. Mm-hmm. And any opportunity to let the person interact with the brand on their own terms to me is, is the right approach. Mm-hmm. I got to go on a retail Digital Retail Tour of Chicago and Rent the Runway had an awesome experience. So their ability to let, let people subscribe to have a certain number of articles of clothing in their wardrobe and then be able to go in and just scan and return or buy them or whatever all by themselves in, in these boutique shops is amazing. And then backing that up, they've got the largest dry cleaning service in the United States.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, I guess that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So they, they clean all this stuff. Those are the types of things that just think, wow, they, kind of like you said, you, you're just skipping all of these steps that we thought we had to do. You don't have to have a sales associate talk to everybody. When they're needed, it's great. But if they're not needed and people still want the in-store experience, we can give them that. And those are things that I would expect are the kind of disruptions that will be in the near term. Yep. And it's not for everybody. It's not you wouldn't do that necessarily at Walmart, but you might for some things. And that I think becomes more of the the opportunity. Like how do you let your brand's data flow into other physical stores or their digital environments as well? And if they have a marketplace, how do you make sure your data is available to them in the format they would need it and when they need it to take action, not like you said three quarters later after we've had time to evaluate it and do a vendor tendering and figure out if it's feasible.
0: Yep. How do you go about sharing that data with retail partners, but also keeping it safe so you're doing everything by the books? Because that's one thing I'm even thinking about now is that the rules on data and data privacy are probably only going to get stricter over the next couple of years. And I can see a lot of people right now who are collecting data, they might not be able to actually use it in the next couple of years because maybe they weren't doing you know, collecting it the right way, telling the users how they were going to use it, you know, following all the rules, how do you go about striking that balance?
1: That's the question, isn't
0: it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me know. I'm trying to learn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's the first approach to data governance is often segregating the data sources so that you make it highly unlikely inappropriate data is shared somewhere. And some of that might be antitrust data that the direct-to-consumer people can't see what the B2B people are doing or working on or their order volume, whatever it would be. And then in trying to get Puma content or data to the retailers, we have a number of tools for that. And a lot of effort is spent on that even for my team that we're direct-to-consumer, but we're really trying to support that B2B business so they can be successful too because we need the same information. So Puma does take the approach of anything that we have, we're willing to give to our retailers
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that we're not going to hoard product data to try to use for our own benefit more. Yep. And so that, for me, it helps because then we don't have to worry about trying to to do something different for search engine optimization. We end up then competing with them directly really, with, with our exact same data. That's not good. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just the, the way it works. So that's okay. But then the consumer data, he you said, like you're just collecting these massive amounts of it, and what's going to happen with it, or what do you do with it? You're not going to take action right now, and I'm happy to see that it's being deleted. Mm-hmm. Like if it's not being used and it's just sitting there, it's going to be removed. Yep. There is kind of an interesting proposal going on in in the EU to create a data market. It's like yeah, this current market, these 27 countries that they would collaborate and share data with the citizens and with each other and the companies mm-hmm. so that you've got government, private citizen data that everyone's able to benefit from. And that is really exciting to me that you'd have the handful of different pillars with things like environmental data sets, manufacturing data sets, things that will help where everyone could benefit if this was out in the open. Mm-hmm. And in there, I, I believe there's going to be a of a requirement to reduce the fear of companies of sharing what they have because in the past years it's been how do you just make sure it's kept as tightly under wraps as possible or not collected at all to an idea of actually there's value in doing this and if we do it together and safely we can unlock a lot of value and actually make life better for a lot of people and so I, i think that the same thing is happening with these brands that google and others have a ton of information and I'll continue to hoard that. Yep. But the brands are able to have information that I think is just more useful for a person to have a good experience and a better life. And so where you find the brands that you like and they're able to give you something back, you're happy to share more. Mm-hmm. And like with Puma Track, I work out with this app. I'm healthier because of the app. I don't mind Puma knowing that about me. And I actually would appreciate if they would be proactive about helping me even get further or convincing me to somehow convince my family and my friends to do more to be healthier. Yeah. So that those are the opportunities that you get when you start sharing this data.
0: Yeah. I could also see it being interesting when brands start partnering with that data, especially if it's combining like location-based data with you know the fact that you're using the app. And then maybe Puma partners with someone else to where someone's walking around a mall when they can go back to malls again, and they're getting different offers based on where they're at. But you're doing it in partnership with other brands because you have access to the same type of data about that person. I could see that being really helpful.
1: I agree with you, which is why I think we need more people with that technology understanding to know how to do that safely and when that's a good decision. And then when they're ready to do it, that it doesn't take years and they can get it done in weeks or months.
0: Got it. one last question before we go to a lightning round, which I'll tell you about in a bit. Dun, dun, dun. My final question is I was on your guys' website and I saw this awesome idea where people were uploading images to your guys' website where they were in, you know, your guys' apparel and shoes and things like that. So I don't know if you're just starting this, but UGC or user-generated content was a huge thing at some of the companies I've been at. A very hard thing to crack though. So did you all just implement this with the whole environment we're in and the, the Stronger Together campaign and all that? Is that when you just started having people upload pictures in the apparel? Or how did you guys think about that campaign?
1: UGC has been a popular topic for a while. Mm-hmm. We started this maybe two years ago and I'm in, in earnest. And uh, it's great because it lets people show how they use the, the brand and the products and what their personality is like. So it's it's just nice to see.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the integration was... like Technically, it's not very difficult. The problems are around moderation. I was
0: just going to ask of that. the, the
1: images. <laughs> yep. yeah. and,
0: da- and quality.
1: <laughs> That's the big hurdle. And so it's nice when you've got a brand as big as Puma because there's plenty of people posting about it already. And so then it's like no one currently had the role of UGC moderator who is going to spend time doing it. So there's a group within our department that just takes turns moderating the, the images that are coming through. Then they assign which products are actually in each one, if there is a product. And so it becomes a lot of process around keeping that in compliance mm-hmm. and and doing it well. So that actually is where all the, the effort is. The tech part's easy.
0: Yes. Got it. Yeah, that's something. I, there's this app, the Like to Know It app, where you can screenshot apparel and then you can instantly buy from it. And that's right when I saw that on the Puma website, I'm like, Oh, that makes it easy because that girl looks like my body shape. And I really like that t-shirt and now I can buy it. And I know what size she's in. And it just seems like a much easier conversion when it's organic like that.
1: That's the key. I kind of give a lot of, like, we have all of these requirements for photography, the miles models, models, you know, stand a certain way. And we take the pictures in these certain angles and the marketplaces have their own rules. But the reality <laughs> for you and me, We're not sample size. We don't fit what a a certain model ever was. So you're like, well, this, yeah, this person looks like me. Okay, I'll buy it. Like that makes
0: sense. (laughs) I look good like that. Oh wait, no. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. All right, are you ready for the lightning round? I think so. Which is, I ask you a question, and you have to answer it in under a minute. So it's whatever comes top of mind. It's your first answer to that question. Okay. All right. So I'll start with the hard one first, and then it'll be fun ones after that. (laughs) All right. It's your job to stay ahead of expectations and whatever comes next in e-commerce. What's up next for e-commerce pros? I
1: would say getting the data moving through your systems as quickly as possible and using as much automation as possible. So everywhere that there is a repeated task, there's likely an opportunity if it's in a in e-commerce specifically, there's probably a good opportunity to automate it. And then it might be just a simple automation, or maybe it's machine learning that becomes smart and chatbots, things like that. But that there will be more and more opportunities for affordable automation and artificial intelligence that will just make all of these tasks that we've had hundreds and thousands of people working on, basically eliminated. And then those people can start to do the work of making it a really great experience to be part of the brand and going from what currently was more of a transactional-based experience where you're like, okay, I need to find product, buy product, wait for product, that that whole chain can be something enjoyable and surprising. And I think that's what's what the future is going to hold and what I hope to see more people doing.
0: Love it. All right. What's up next on your podcast list or Audible? Other than this episode, when it comes out, of course. Um,
1: often check on Radiolab, but there was a uh, surfing podcast that I'm now listening to. So I want to find out what happened with Quicksilver.
0: Ooh, fun. All right. What's up next for dinner? Is your wife making anything tasty?
1: She always makes something tasty. Uh, she's a vegetarian and an incredible cook. So um, tonight, I believe, was uh, some sort of tacos, but she's an excellent cook.
0: Yum. All right, what's up next on your Netflix queue or Hulu, if you prefer.
1: <laughs> uh, I just finished Tiger. So right now I'm, I'm taking too. a break.
0: <laughs> Guilty pleasures. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I judged it so hard when people kept telling me to watch it. I don't know if you were the same. And then I watched I'm like, oh, this is good. <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to be embarrassed.
1: <laughs> uh, but uh, so now I am taking a little bit of a hiatus. <laughs>
0: Taking a brain break. I think that, yeah, I'm doing the same. All right. And the last one, once we can get out into the world again, what's up next on your travel destinations?
1: We wanted to go to Portugal and do some surfing in Portugal.
0: Very cool. Well, I hope you can do that soon. All right. Well, this has been a blast. So much fun talking to you, Dylan. And uh, yeah, I hope we can have you back in the near future. Thanks for coming on the show. All
1: right. Thank you.
2: Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.